This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance podcast uh, number 90. With mm. me from India, Varun Mathur. Hi, Varun, uh, who's muted, I see. Uh, Hiroyuki Hamada in New York. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. And hey Johan. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, guys, just leave the just leave the fucking mute thing off, okay? It's okay, because this happens every time. Um, Johan Edebo in Japan, and so it's hey, very good morning. Late good morning, early, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very nice, uh, um, selfless of Johan to stay up oh, whatever fun. it is three in the morning uh, in Tokyo. So, and Corey Morningstar will, I hope, be joining us. Um, I think uh, probably she will, but she's not here yet. Uh, as always, this has been um, how many days since the last one? 11 days since the last one, uh, last podcast we did. And there, of course, are always a number of topics and a couple of things I wanted to touch on. Uh, one is the, the, the selling of fear regarding global warming. I mean, everybody has seen these insane, scary maps in bright red and orange and pink. Red didn't get sufficient enough. So now like hot pink is the level above red, uh, claims it's the, you know, most, uh, the highest temperatures the earth has ever recorded in a thousand years. They don't know that. Nobody knows that. It's highly doubtful that's true. And they changed the yard, changed the goalpost rather, uh, for how they measure temperature. There's a concerted effort to, to sell fear. That's, that's the point. So that's, that's one topic. And, and there has been an enormous growing skepticism to the whole climate narrative, which is a healthy thing. The other thing I did an interview with Thomas Lynch, I believe that's his name, Thomas Lynch, Thomas Lynch. God, I can't believe I don't remember. Anyway, Thinking Thomas, he does some very interesting podcasts. I've done one before, Johan has done one before, and I did one uh, yesterday. And I spoke about the documentary Into Great Silence, made in 2005 about a monastery in the French Alps, a Carthusian monastery. It's a remarkable, it's a remarkable film. And I encourage everybody to go see it. I watched it again. I've always been endlessly fascinated with this idea and I find it very appealing I talked about this already on this other interview. So, if, but some people can listen to that, but, it, and I don't want to repeat myself, but, but there is a, the point here, I think, is that there is a connection between the monasterial life, a retreat, a vow of silence, a life of contemplation and prayer and meditation and reading and uh, 
uh, and and the 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 in general all the things that have been lost in terms of our historical learning and tradition and culture. Uh, I made the connection because I think it's very true, actually, even if at first it sounds odd. But they're destroying farms uh, now in Ireland, but the Dutch farmers are still under assault now, probably in Germany, Belgium, uh, under under cover of uh, fighting global warming because because cow farts or cow shit or something for, creates too much methane. Who knows? It's such it's such spurious pseudoscience. I don't know what to say about it. But my point is, you are killing culture. You are not just destroying an industry the livelihoods of people, family identities, you are destroying a culture. I live near farms. My wife's family has a dairy farm. My young boys love to go to the farm. There are smells and sounds and it's so evocative and extraordinary for them. It's, it, I see it in their faces, their uncle runs the farm and it has been in the family for a while. And I think what, what happens to people whose entire identity and worldview has been shaped by, you know, because we're not talking about huge industrial farming, we're talking about small family farms. What happens to these people after this? What is the improvement in the world if we destroy things like these farms. We destroy traditions that go back thousands of years, in fact, to be replaced by what? Uh, Yuval Harari's fantasies about- The multinational in, uh, corporate interest, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's where they come in, right? But it's, it's just, I think what's, I think what's so depressing, why people are feeling depressed in general, uh, because because if if we are to believe reports, people are depressed. Is this assault on culture and everything we come to understand as culturally important, as historically significant, as being erased, and all governments provide anymore is destruction of one kind or another, war, restriction, economic you know, punishment and hardship, states of extreme precarity, people, of course, people are going to have mental health problems, extreme anxiety. The state of homelessness now is finally making a, a an appearance in media is finally visible in media a little bit more because it can't be ignored. It's so extraordinary in the United States, just extraordinary, the numbers. Johan. I feel my connection is garbage, but we'll see what happens. 
there's a there's a Swedish journalist on on the left. His name is Joran Greider. He remarked last week that that we have no myth and we are alone, uh, especially in in the face of of the climate change disaster. He was um, concerned about. We have no mythological tools to deal with this existential crisis. Was his argument? So so that's a complex proposition to tweet apart, I guess. But he has a point in some sense. <clears throat> but I, I do think we have myths in the sense of these overarching meta narratives, sure. But I would I would say that our myths are both false and misleading and at the same time <clears throat> insufficient to provide us with uh, with nourishment for what you could call proper integrative myth-making, you know, reflection and ritual that traditional societies have, have maintained. And, and last week or so, I've been thinking about the significance of this loss of, of myth and of something I think I would like to call mythical reflexivity. Uh, maybe that's a good concept because I, I think the loss of, of this mythical space as some used to call it, I think it's more profound and more destructive than, than uh, we normally realize. So maybe that's something to, to go discuss. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that it is. Somebody said described contemporary society as the empire of empty signs. Hmm. Uh, and I, on the interview with Thinking Thomas, I mentioned Manfredo Tarfuri, who has a beautiful essay on the artwork of Piranesi. His drawings, etchings of imaginary prisons, the carceri. They're extraordinary works and Tarfuri's essay is extraordinary. But <clears throat> he talked about it in relationship to the architecture of the enlightenment, which was already felt on the, on the front edges of empty, that it was an architecture of empty signs already. And I later commented in my, because this was from a blog post of mine from like seven, eight years ago. I said, enlightenment architecture is an architecture of guilt. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that is far more true today. We, we mm -hmm. live in an era with an architecture of uh, pathology of some, some kind of moral sickness is expressed in our architecture. And this takes one back to the monastery, uh, the balance, proportion, beauty, and sound mm. of that monastery is, is unforgettable, is indelible. Uh, and I remember that from India. I'm about to, Varun, I think you wanted to say something. Because I remember the Jain temples in Rajasthan, uh, these incredibly thick walls, uh, uh, rammed earth buildings, red, I remember, and cool inside and this beautiful sense of quiet. Um, all sounds were, were muffled a bit and it, they're just, I remember being struck by it, and then suddenly you're outside, and it's noisy, and motor scooters, scooters, and exhaust, and um, 
so on and so forth. Uh, so I, I think, I think the loss of myth-making is incredibly important. And I think we, we, the West, doesn't just create insufficient myths or empty rituals. I, I think they did, but I think we have passed over into something else now that, mm. is, uh, that is less benign than, uh, than just empty. Uh, go ahead, Johan. Should we believe somebody, whoever wanted to talk? Go ahead, Oh, Just a simple point. I think the, I mean, whether it's through forced debt, like it's happened in India and a lot of the South, the global South, or it's going to be through policy, like they're trying in Europe, to disconnect the connection of the human and the land that it lives on, is one way of getting ahead with the Green New Deal, of course, but it's also kind of inducing a sort of hyper-reality where the corporation is only in control of what you eat, right? Like that's the move. And yeah. I think that that kind of makes you permanently dependent on an externalized source for sustenance, not just for any indulgence, forget all that stuff, but just even to feed your family, you're gonna be a beggar, right? So that's that's uh, this is a really insidious move in the sense, and I think it's very well timed in in yeah. how to propagate the Green New Deal. But it also connects to mythology because a lot of a lot of globe like international mythology is connected to the land. It's through symbolism of mm -hmm. nature and the universe that we have built the stories of what we are doing here, why we are here, and how we're supposed to treat each other and so on and so forth. So that the destruction of the myth and the replacement with the spectacle in that sense hmm. has already put us in a place where we are already prisoners of empire in that sense, psychologically. Yeah. And now they are kind of translating that into everyday lived experience, I think. <clears throat> um. I, yeah, Johan, I'm, and I'm going to answer that in a second, but because I think that's right. right sure, but I, I agree with you, John, here, but I, I would say that the, the social atomism emanating from the spec and now that there are, there's not just empty rituals and, and let's call it like superficial jingoistic myths and so on, because there's nothing of this sort anymore, that there's not just empty placeholders. And what I would call traditional mythical reflexivity is something which provides this, this deeper form of existential and, and cultural coherence, which is traditionally manifest in everything from, from narrative to architecture and to song and music and so on. I think this could be a useful concept, mythical reflexivity, because I want to use it to refer to this sort of, of rational and imaginative thinking that goes on in what, what some people call the mythical space. In, in other words, in, in this field of relational cognition that through these profound archetypes and archaic themes connect us to the deeper realities of, of specifically embodied human existence. And this is what psychoanalysis in some sense attempted to preserve, I think. And maybe here you maybe you have something to say about this since you've uh, you've recently finished that Jacobi book that talks a lot about the loss of psychoanalysis. Well, <clears throat> yeah, John talks about yeah. 
talked about it uh, extensively in his blog posts and uh, uh, one of the books that sort of uh, encapsulate the uh, major ideas is uh, this book called The Social Amnesia by uh, Russell Jacoby. And uh, the, the basic premise is that the, uh, uh, the capitalist trajectory of framing everything into the uh, consumption and uh, 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 draconian measures of uh, uh, capitalist imperatives is interfering with the uh, the path of the uh, history of psychology. So what uh, Freud came up with uh, his uh, uh, research, the uh, the mechanism of um, uh, unconscious, uh, the structure of personal mind into ego, uh, ego, uh, ego, 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 and uh, super ego. Uh, the, the, this basically um, explains how we perceive our world um, and that's reflected in the uh, uh, where we live. And uh, so um, it, it's it's very beautiful uh, way of describing how uh, capitalist imperatives uh, turned theories into therapies, therapies of band-aiding um, uh, uh, determinant uh, effects and uh, destroying the idea that the uh, oppressive forces uh, manifest uh, in our minds as illnesses is uh, um, taken care of by the uh, various ways of um, um, adjustment and uh, uh, basically uh, um, giving you uh, solutions that could tolerate the oppressive forces instead of pointing out the root of the problems as problems um, so this this is really parallels uh, with all the other things. Uh, we talk about politics, for example. We're not going to talk about uh, the basic structural problems of the uh, the class system and uh, accumulation of wealth, but we can talk about uh, how to deal with it by um, uh, giving authority to the uh, nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, uh, military interest, interest, military industrial complex, uh, a series of networks of corporate uh, networks that would hard people into uh, solutions, solutions that are concocted by the uh, people who created the problems. So it it, it was really a, a, a eye opening uh, book in many ways and it also gives you uh um, gateways to uh uh look into um uh different things for example it, it talked about uh, of course it talked about a lot about uh, uh freud's um uh, theories and uh it gives you um uh certain refer reference materials and uh, you can look into certain angles and uh, 
it, it, it's uh, uh, it's very important book, I think. Um, uh, um, you know, let me just proud. say, yeah, that that book I mentioned to somebody the other day. Uh, that book, Social Amnesia, Russell Jacoby. I've probably referred to that book more than any other single book. And this book was written in the 1980s. Uh, Jacoby is still around. He still teaches. He never got promoted at, at I believe, UCLA. He's, he's, you know, an adjunct or something. I mean, he's the most brilliant man in America, possibly, and uh, certainly uh, one of the few uh, genuinely informed historians, social historians, and uh, and he can barely find work. And that book has been buried in many ways. He's got several other very good books. The Last Intellectuals is good. Uh, and and so. So you see, look at look at who gets promoted at university. We can talk about the bankruptcy of academia. The recent Harvard scandal was pretty amusing, but uh, the bankruptcy of academia. And you look at the fact that there are people out there in theater, a Murray Mednick. Why why did Brown or or Yale not? get on the phone immediately to talk to Medvek to run their theater department. I mean, it's insane that that never happened. Uh, but I couldn't get arrested to teach, any, get any job. Murray couldn't, Irene Forness could, none of these people can. A few got jobs, but nobody wants those jobs anyway, because it's in, it, it, that you work within a framework that kills creativity. I'm completely digressing from the, the point here. Uh, the point is that what Jacoby zeroes in on and what I find really important is the radical nature in Freud that most of that original Vienna circle were Marxists, socialists, communists, and uh, uh, it immediately began uh, to, to be diluted, that radical force. It scared people, certainly then by the time it traveled to North America, it was co-opted, medicalized, and, and made into adjustment therapy instead of a search for the truth with radical political implications. Corey has joined us. Hi, Corey. Hi, Hi everybody. Hi, Mr. Hey, Corey. Hey. Uh, joining us from Toronto. Hi. Uh, Hi. I'm so glad actually you made it. Thank you. Uh, uh, the, the, so, so this is a topic, and this is something, and then I turn this over to whoever wants to talk about it. several different topics. But to stay on the, the, the mention of Jacobi and Freudianism and the monastery and the search for the ineffable something. My last blog post, I talked about this concept that Freud only mentioned once or twice, das Ding, the thing. It was a secondary aside by Freud, and it sounded almost Jungian that, that there is, at the end of this radical search for the, the, the activity or 
or point of uh, uh, origin for consciousness or the emergence of conscious awareness out of unconsciousness, all of these mysterious, however one wants to pursue that, that however, whatever path you track backwards in the origin of the species, the origin of the individual, there is this same narrative that ends at this point that is inexplicable. And as Wittgenstein said, even if everything were explained, the mystery would remain. That's kind of the point of dusting this thing. And I think that's what all religion is about in a certain sense. But if you're serious, uh, that's, and it's connected to death, of course, it's connected to mortality. Uh, and it brings up, you should read John Berger's writings on the, on the cave paintings at Lascaux. Anyway, that's one topic because I think this touches on what Johan was referencing with this empire of empty signs, insufficient signs, symbols, rituals. Uh, and it's also possible the only rituals that have meaning are, are like the scapegoating of people. And it, it, they are, the only rituals with genuine energy anymore are sadistic and punitive. But the other topic is global warming. And I saw another, we're suddenly awash in these videos of various young protest groups, climate action, blah, blah, blah. They're always young and white. And they have these photo ops and the police never intervene until the photo op is completed, I notice, which suggests they're very clearly staged. And one was a mother in the car screaming, I have to get my son to the hospital. And they, the climate protesters wouldn't get out of the way. Okay, okay. If I was in a car and I actually really had to get my son to the hospital, I would run them over. So would any parent. So I'm not buying it. Uh, but what is this about? It's to, it's comp that this is one of those dialectical propaganda campaigns because I don't entirely understand it. I also don't know who funds these people or who is behind them or anything else. Okay, Johan and then Varun. Sure, uh, to, to sort of connect back with what I said here, I think this this loss of the mythical space is more profound than I've realized. Uh, first, because I think it robs us of several dimensions of human experience and thought that cannot be accessed otherwise. But I think there are ideas and experience experiences that cannot be conveyed or expressed outside of the sphere of myth and embodied ritual. Also, I, I actually wouldn't even call them ideas in, in the proper sense, because I think we have here something like complexes of, of relational cognitive resonance that cannot really be reduced to, to easily handled abstractions taken out of their specific context. But, but they're not necessarily mysteries in, in the higher sense of the word. They're not inexplicable per se to connect with what you said, John, but only inexplicable 
if they're taken out of context and, and if, if you try to probe them by the abstracted and, and one dimensional Cartesian objective rationality of, of modern thought. I, I think that's that's the problem. Yeah, well, that's an interesting, yeah. I mean, we may disagree on the nature of, of what is mysterious or inexplicable, but point taken, and I think this is why those books of Peter Godfrey Smith resonated with me. He was the marine biologist, philosopher, wrote about the intelligence of the octopus, uh, the cuttlefish. Uh -huh. And then he wrote Metazoa, which is a book I think everybody should read about the origin of life on the planet as much as it can be understood. And he has hypotheticals. There's a, there's a sponge and it's fixed in place, but it reproduces, it does certain things, it snatches food out of the sea that passes by. Is it sentient, right? Is it a plant or an animal? Uh, and that sponge did that for a few hundred thousand years. <laughs> you know, you, it, it, it's, it's like the monks at the abbey returning a phone call 16 years <laughs> later. Uh, there is, uh, by the time you have shrimp scurrying about this microbial map on the bottom of the floor, mat rather, on the bottom of the ocean floor, pretty much everyone agrees they're sentient. Do they have consciousness? What does that mean? What is it? We don't, we can't say what does it feel like to be a shrimp? It's too far removed from us. We can say what it we can imagine what it what it feels like to be a dog, what it feels like to be a parrot, what it feels like to be a dolphin, a chimpanzee. Okay, to some degree. Again, Wittgenstein, right? If a lion could talk, we'd be unable to understand him. Ponder that. It's a, such a profound comment. Anyway, so where is the line? Where is the the demarcation in this evolution of life at which we say consciousness begins. It's a, it's, it's a pointless question. We don't know because we don't know what consciousness is. And that's what, that's what this thing is, in a sense, is, again, John Berger writing about the cave men, painters, painted in the dark. Everything was in the dark, in remote corners of the caves. And then they would step into the light. And I have always said that there was one moment, mad, there were many moments, but there was one moment for any particular individual when they stepped into the light and went, wait, wait, and looked back. For me, that's the beginning of theater, uh, but it's the beginning of something that's stepping into the light where you become aware that it's, you, you're occupying space there somehow in the world. Uh, this is something that we could spend a thousand hours discussing, obviously. Uh, Varun and then Hiroyuki and Corey, please. Varun. I think um, this idea of, um, I mean, Hiroyuki's explanation of the book was pretty good. I haven't read it, but the context of myth, the disconnection of the collective cognitive that is, mm 
trying to connect to something which is beyond what is visible. I think that atomism has, has created that rift, which is terrestrialized meaning making only to materialism in that sense. So there is no more, um, there are no more signs that, that, uh, uh, the, that the collective is uh, subscribing to that can take them out of the meaning making of empire in that sense, mm -hmm. right? So uh, you're, caught, you're caught in this kind of, sorry, go on. No, no, I just wanted to say that, that because not everybody has read this book and I just wanted to make clear that Jacoby's key point and there are other writers of about the history of psychoanalysis, Samuel Weber is one who's very good. Uh, what happened was when psychoanalysis, when Freudian psychoanalysis arrived in North America, it was very quickly appropriated by institutions. It was medicalized. Freud had an essay, the issue of lay analysis, I mean, the title is, I'm probably paraphrasing, but that you didn't have to be a trained psychoanalyst. You could just sit and listen to somebody talk. It was a form of therapy. Uh, it was medicalized and the goal was to make your life work in quotation marks. It was to adjust to the irrational, not to probe the trauma caused by the irrational. And yeah. that adjustment eventually itself was appropriated by pharmacology that, that we could chemically warehouse people. We didn't need asylums. We could, could create chemical asylums. Yeah. That was the point. It neutralized the radical political implications of psychoanalysis. Yeah, um, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Hiroyuki or whoever wants to talk. Well, I, in terms of the rituals and uh, myth, um, I, I think what happens is that the uh, when uh, uh, when the psychoanalysis was co-opted in the way you just described. Uh, the whole thing is going to be under the uh, 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 dictates of the uh, institutions, which uh, distort and twist uh, what it is to uh, engage in ritual. For example, if you are talking about uh, political political institution, um, instead of engaging in uh, actual uh, activism of uh, forwarding your interests, you are engaging in rituals of doing whatever that's appropriate. Um, you know, you have Democratic Party, you have Republican Party, you have a nonprofit industrial complex. They would give you packaged ideas and um, ways to react to certain ideas. So basically when uh, uh, theory was turned into therapies, um, things got ritualized under uh, the guidance of the uh, inst capital capitalist institutions. So, um, so I think it, it all um, um, sort of, um, tied up nicely, we, we have rituals that are um, uh, sponsored by the uh, uh, 
corporate interests and we have myth and uh, we have legends we have heroes of political uh, corporate political parties and um, so we have this kind of uh, framework which um, totally nullifies any good deeds when they get onto the uh, prepared stage of uh, politics, uh, even science or even art. So this is a um, very uh, frustrating situation. You basically can't really talk about the essence because if you start talk about it, uh, your opinion is gonna be digested by the wars by the ideas of prevalent uh, imperatives. And yeah. Uh, yeah um, well, let me just say that, that <clears throat> if it's something like one in four Americans, and I believe Canadians too, have been prescribed antidepressants in the last year, 25% of the population has taken antidepressants, massive massive uptick over the last 30 years and marcia angel's essay from i don't know when it was 2014 or something in the <clears throat> new york review uh, uh or in the new york or one of those uh it's a very famous piece about mental illness and she talks about the staggering number of prescriptions imagine that the original freudians came to america and were not appropriated what what that those theories left unimpeded which of course is impossible but it's a hypothetical where would where would western society be today if they were not numbed with with antidepressants and tranquilizers and psychotropics and all the rest it's an interesting idea but but of course uh the system demands that such things such things be neutralized i mean as with dissent and i kind of want to get over to the climate discussion too at some point here because i it's just been i can't see another scare map in red and hot pink i'm going to lose my mind uh and and the numbers are so suspect and and the the peddling of fear is just it's just headlines screaming earth will be uninhabitable in a handful of years this is a this is a marketing agenda to get people to submit to all these you know the great reset all these digital ids etc etc all the things we know and have talked about for a long time uh and and i don't think it will work i've never thought it was going to work i don't think given the protests we are seeing everywhere globally which aren't really reported on it seems like it's not going to work i think there's enough people that just just think this is horrifying and uh i think governments underestimated the how a, that people have an emotional investment in things like small farming, not just the farmers. Everybody has an emotional attachment to this investment and a connection to it. And it 
feels like a personal assault, I think. I think that was underestimated because I, th I think the ruling class, the people who make these decisions, don't think of the masses as, as individual human beings. I think they think of them as something far lesser than that. Um, Johan? No, yeah, but but there's there's clearly a significant push right now towards well emphasizing and and marketing this this narrative all across various media. I, I, and why, why what do you think is the reason for this at this particular moment? Do you see any connections here? Uh, and, and just an example, I think I sent this guy this this picture to you. Few days ago, how how bold faced the the framing can be sometimes. There's a it's the Wikipedia page page for Tokyo with the climate data a bit further down, and it's it's framed by stating uh, Tokyo has experienced significant warming of its climate since temperature records began in 1876, but the data you get show clearly that the average highs were higher in the 1876 to 1905 period than the 1991 to 2020 period, which is really odd in, in the context. Well, so, yeah. I, 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 there have been a number of maps that, of the United States, extreme heat. And mm. one, of, one of them amusingly actually showed Wyoming and Montana at the epicenter of the hot pink danger zone, suggesting unlivable temperatures. And I know people in Montana. And I wrote them, I said, what is it? Is it like 130 degrees there? And he goes, no, it's actually kind of cooler than usual. He goes, I don't know what all this shit is. So they're lying. They're just they're just throwing shit up and to scare people. It's clearly not true. Corey. Okay, yeah, I just, where to begin on this? So the climate defiance, one that you started with, um, it has the, you know, the young, well-intentioned kids protesting. For example, they have a tweet, and that, that one's new this year in January. Um, you know, Greta's old news, we've got to get replacements out there. But anyway, it says, in 25 days, we will blockade the White House Correspondents' Dinner, demanding the president choose us over fossil fuel CEOs, right? Um, share widely, tell everyone, time is short. But like, what does that mean that they choose them over fossil fuels? Like, what does that mean in real terms? What is the choice, these people over fossil fuels? What do they want? Like, what are they asking for? Because it's nothing. It's just save us, you know, save the climate, save the climate. And it's right. okay. Okay. So I think you had asked me about the funding and it's actually, I thought it was can, um, which it's not, but I just looked at, I had that paper open anyway, and I did climate action network, which is international it has at least a couple thousand members, probably 3000 members, governments and um, NGOs. Anyway, they're funders, and this is, they've not, nothing updated for an annual report since 2017, but the number one funder is Anonymous, 
right? And then, <laughs> and then it goes on Cli Climate Works, right? World Resources Institute, which is shares a revolving door with the um, Council on Foreign Relations. We Mean Business, Mission 2020, founded by We Mean Business, European Climate Foundation, which I've wrote about, Climate Works Foundation, which I've wrote about like all these NGOs, right? Again, this is marketing. This is new markets, emerging markets. And um, like, again, like I just hope people are getting that. It has nothing to do with protecting our climate, with protecting biodiversity, with protecting people. It has nothing to do with that. And then we talked about before just how it's framed. That's the ind individual that caused this, right? Um, not the system itself, not the ruling class or the system. Um, you know, not the IMF, the World Bank, anybody, it's you. And so you're the problem. And um, yeah, and then people, I don't even know where it's going with that. Basically, it's just set up as I think Johan had talked about that, um, or asked a question about that. But basically, it's set up that, that we're the problem, hence the solutions have to be the crushing of us, right? Like, taking away our freedom, shutting down our businesses, small scale, shutting down local, right? And everything that's corporate and ruling class is sustained and will expand. Again, more privatization, all the wealth moving up. I mean, I think it's so, so clear. Yeah. I think, I think no, it's it is, so it's, clear. It's amazing. I didn't know what the funding was. I asked you because you're a far better researcher than I am. And uh that's that's astounding of course that's who it is it smells like them and part of the reason it it was immediately suspect to me besides the kind of staged photo ops that i was watching uh was was this general vacuous language that they use right as you just pointed out uh choose us what does that mean what does anything you're saying actually mean uh nobody it, 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 there's not a single concrete suggestion in anything that i i could find that that they had put out nothing not a single con not put down your your smartphones stomp them grind them into dust no no uh it, there's nothing of that sort. The only concrete examples that are sort of secondary and and but run alongside this is this discouraging of travel, the 15 minute city, all these I but but it, they're incoherent. Even those ideas are incoherent because we're faced with these contradictions that are constantly out there. I just did a press TV thing talking about Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman has this vision 2030 that he's promoting modernizing Saudi Arabia. By 2030, he wants all of Saudi Arabia, but Riyadh in particular, to be the, the new Dubai. He wants a huge increase in tourism and he wants freedoms and women can take their scarves off and drive around in their Teslas and whatever. Uh, I don't know how realistic it is at all, but Bin Salman himself has amassed an enormous amount of power. It's impressive in a way. He's an adroit, uh, he's an adroit politician. Uh, and, and so, 
what is, and yet this is a guy who, who mouths platitudes about climate change like everybody does, like every single politician in the world. Uh, none of it, none of it adds up, but nobody even, it seems like the public or a huge amount of the public simply don't process these things except in the most fragmentary way. So the contradictions kind of evaporate for them. It's, 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 it's part of this unreality that is so pervasive. Um, Johan, and then Hiroyuki. Right, no, on, on the contradictions we, we mentioned here, you mentioned here, uh, I, I think we, we ought to, um, ought to observe that uh, Russia is now uh, obviously the culprit in, the, in the, the food price situation due to the dropped grain deal and all of that. You, you know, remember one, one a year and a half back, you know, we, I think all of us said that these sanctions will cause grain prices to spike, which will cost a lot of lives in, in the developing world, which happened and nobody cared. And that was that. Now, apparently, the same thing is about to happen due to Russia and their devious ambitions to starve the, the third world. But the context is still that of the sanctions. I mean, the Ru Ru Russians are actually requesting lifting of sanctions for agriculture exports as a, in the discussions with the UN on this. So that's maybe something to to talk about. And that's well, kind of a blatant contradiction. Yeah, go ahead. No, but the sanctions, the US has 20 plus countries right. sanctioned in one way or another. And there was a recent uh, uh, episode, meaningless, in uh, the Gulf, uh, Straits of Hormuz, actually, which is, a, which is a choke point for all the massive numbers of tankers and stuff that pass through there. And Iranian ships were seizing illegal oil and whatnot and the u.s went in there and said every the big news story was how dastardly the iranians were and they were illegal doing the reason there's tensions in the gulf are because of the sanctions against iran that's the whole point and the u.s what does the u.s have warships patrolling the gulf that, that's nowhere near the united states well, i mean it's just nobody asks these americans simply that's one thing that even relatively intelligent Americans are blind to, by and large, is American exceptionalism. They, they just have grown up with a point of view that America is this force for good. And of course, they deserve to be everywhere helping solve problems because white saviors are the cornerstone of civilization. And and so all of these poor, stupid people and countries in the global south absolutely need American know-how and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's very hard to have conversations about this because, because people have been very profoundly indoctrinated. Hiroyuki? Yes, I, I, I totally agree. And uh, uh, 
last night I was uh, watching an interview uh, of um, uh, Judith Curry, uh, who is known as a um, uh, dissident uh, climate scientist, and uh, uh, she has a tremendous background in uh, in the field, and uh, she's been vocal about the uh, those oddities in climate science, for example, the, uh, the how the, uh, the temperatures are measured, how um, all those uh, uh, modeling um, uh, methods uh, add up to uh, extraordinary uh, discoveries. But if you look into it, uh, evidences are uh, indicating that, uh, that they don't make sense. Um, so these things are a matter of science. And uh, as a scientist, she has been talking about all those things, and uh, but she's been completely demonized. Like you were saying, uh, she's had a hard time getting the job as a, a major institution. So I guess she ended up as a, a private uh, practitioner. She, I think she came up with some kind of company to uh, propagate what she's uh, saying, and uh, uh, people like her will be invited into uh, congressional hearings, uh, many of them, and uh, people who are inviting her are Republican Party uh, individuals. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in, in this framework, it's completely uh, nullified uh, it's completely ritualized into this political dynamics. And it's, it's really, uh, there are layers and layers of difficulties um, preventing people to talk about actual things. And as a result, we have, you know, all kinds of protests, activism that are supposedly working for the people, but funded by the big corporations. So um it, it you know and and stuff about russia i mean russia is a oil producing company our country you know venezuela um so yeah. there's a imperial motive in staying away from uh fossil fuel uh directions as well so everything uh really um neatly um uh into this uh, the the theater theater of clowns. It's um, <laughs> well, the, the, you know that I'm I I don't claim to be a scientifically literate particularly, but uh, but I talk to people and I think the point I always end up with is that the science that has become sacrosanct and etched in tablets of, you know, stone handed down from um, God is bogus. The science is bad. It's laughably bad for climate change and global warming. Now the earth may be getting warmer. It's going through a warming period. I, it doesn't certainly there are many places on earth that are cooler than usual, like Scandinavia, where today it's raining and 12 degrees. Uh, so nobody knows, that's always my, it's like you, they are constructing, a, a, producing an ideology of, of 
of submission that the public must submit, as Corey said, the problem is you and me, we must submit and be punished because we've been bad and we've made the earth unlivable and have to give up even the smallest pleasures like they're shutting old pizza kitchens down in New York City. Uh, no pleasure will be allowed any longer. That's the idea. And areas of wilderness will be set off and, or made rewilded for the pleasure of the ruling clan. I mean, that was the old Nazi fantasy. And that's, that's the goal. I don't, again, I don't think this is possible. I don't, because I just think, I think there is resistance. There's enormous resistance, but, but that's the plan. And, uh, and, and it's the, the most vocal cheerleaders for this stuff are in America, liberal Democrats. Corey? But you will be able to use and eat and consume, uh, digest as much plastic as you could ever dream of. You can have all of the plastic in the world, um, just gorge yourself with plastic and, um, yeah, and edible oil of processed foods and synthetic foods. You can ha have all of that that you want. And um, guess what? Plastic's made from oil. And so I don't get how no one's watching the plastic industry expand, 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 expand. Not only that, in Canada, we had at the beginning of the quote unquote pandemic, we had 36 million. Now we're over 40 million and they'd like to get to 100 million by 2100. And we have massive apartment buildings going up all over 40 story. They all have to be cooled with air conditioning. And we have data centers coming online in um, Ireland. There's a lot of protests against data centers. They banned it because they're having blackouts. Um, that's going to cause water shortages, backouts. Now they've lifted the ban. Um, I'm not sure at this exact moment what's happening. But I mean, this is the... This is the infrastructure for the world. These are the plans for the world, you know, um, basically drowning in our own fucking plastic and and using all this energy for cars and for, um, you know, watching movies and playing music and cat videos and what have you. And yeah. it's insane, right? This is insane. And we don't have discussions about how we can live a better life. We talk about planting new trees. We don't talk about saving and protecting existing trees, right? I mean, no wonder there's more CO2 when you've um, basically eradicated all the earth's forests, right? And destroyed habitat for, you know, uh, sentient life, trees. I mean, it's just unreal how we're so distracted and, and yeah. we're literally, like they say, herd them like cats, right? We're literally herded like cats and we grab onto all their talking points and stick with them and blind to everything that's going on that's actually destroying our natural world and each other, right? And it's um, crazy. And, and the I very same people, the very same people who cheerlead this green agenda, this, this new green agenda are also cheerleading the NATO proxy war against mm. Ukraine and Russia. How that that cognitive dissonance disappears is beyond me, Johan. No, and all of this, all 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 of these observations you make, Corey, I think are, are very interesting in in relation to the the transition to renewables. The notion that we can uh, just switch over to renewables because 
even if we could run the transportation infrastructure on, on renewables, the entire supply chains that undergird the growth economy in general could, could never be run on, on renewables because in them is so deeply embedded that this dependence on, on fossil fuels in, in every aspect of it, not only plastics, but, you know, concrete and mining and smelting and, you know, the whole, yeah, the whole situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, Hiroyuki? Hey, I think it, the, uh, uh, the religious wow. overtone of the whole thing is really uh, interesting. You know, you got the ritual, the political rituals of uh, whatever you do, uh, that's supposed to be a good, uh, uh, for the uh, the good citizens, and you, we have uh, human sacrifice of uh, oppressed people uh, justifies the whole thing. And if you look at the uh, uh, the God, the science, and um, uh, the authority of uh, the the capital, uh, of course, we we have a lot of questions about those things. So it's uh, and and if it's a religion, there's no it's a it's a leap of faith, right? You don't really uh, question. You you uh, you you believe what you believe, and uh, that's that's the end of it. And uh, you uh, you just do whatever you're supposed to do. So um, this is, I think people kind of uh, locked into this uh, the mentality that's borders with uh, religion. It's um, well, uh, I think you have a, I think you have a, at least a, a, a significant percentage of the population who are numbed and, and, and they have internalized the indoctrination they've been subjected to for 30 years now. And, and so they cheerlead censorship. I mean, the Robert Kennedy thing, and I'm very suspicious about all of this, believe me, but it's just interesting in terms of optics that it's the democrats who want to censor him and silence him and not allow him to speak so where does he end up speaking on fox news <laughs> uh, i'm sure there's an interview with tucker carlson in the works uh it, it, it's it's it starts to feel like infinite distraction the transgender wars, the, the the all the all the sort of rhetoric and and emotional uh, excessive emotional investment in in arguments that are very trivial, all of it just keeps people busy. And meanwhile, they're texting furiously to each other about the things that that bother them. Uh, nobody that it it. What has been achieved by the system, by by the the ruling governments and their their uh, institutional uh, outlets, what has been achieved is the destruction of discourse, dialogue, conversation between people. Nobody is able to to talk to anybody, uh, and. Uh, and there is a, we talked, of course, about this before with COVID, dissent was 
hugely stigmatized. People were abused and attacked and, and vilified, lynched, cyber lynching of people who voiced any kind of dissent. It was replicated with the US-Ukraine war against Russia. And now it is being transferred to the climate discourse. You can't say anything because you're a conspiracy theorist, a crackpot, a lunatic. And, and, and it, a lot of people will remain quiet because they are dependent on their jobs. There are very few jobs out there. People don't want to lose their jobs, all of which is understandable. That has been the success of, of this, this campaign. And uh, it's, it, 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 I, you know, we are all of us here <clears throat> in this podcast dependent on disseminating our work through the internet and through all of these platforms that none of us particularly like, but that, but are all that we have. And at a certain point, once this, this goes back to the Carthusian monks at a certain point, I think power has been consolidated to such a degree that there's not going to be any kind of electoral solution to this. Certainly change right. won't come through voting. I don't think it, it, the conditions exist for a revolution. Uh, although again, these protests globally are enormous and they've had, I mean, France is just under siege and and yet, and yet, uh, there it, it is the, the the protests are not articulate. They're not. I don't know half the time what things. I mean, I know what the Dutch farmers are mad about, but often I don't know what anybody is mad about. Like these climate groups, oh, choose us and not fossil fuel. Uh, you know, um, but I don't see any of these. It's it's personal performance. I don't see any of these people making significant sacrifice themselves to do anything. Gluing yourself to a Monet is not, it's not going to change anything. Corey. Well, I think it's um, not a good sign that there will be any revolution here when people are, you know, going out in mass to watch the Barbie film. Did you guys already discuss that? No. <laughs> I, I, can I just read to the intro and then you guys yeah. can jump in? Okay, so Greta Gerwig's Barbie, which hit theaters on Friday, is expected by some box analysts to gross $140 million. The, the film is the first of Mattel's new cinematic universe, which already has at least 45 new film adaptations of the company's iconic toys in development, including a live-action Hot Wheels movie, from J.J. Abrams and a Barney film geared toward adults that one producer said will lean into millennial angst. The company's goal is to become a talent magnet attracting top-notch creatives to amplify the brand. Um, he clarified, the CEO clarified that Mattel does not fund its movies, rather its currency lies with its intellectual property and marketing expertise. He said, adding that the company does have a hand in the film's business side. Barbie has had an enormous marketing campaign with more than 100 brands, including Bloomingdale's, Kohl's, Crocs, and Gap, forging deals with Mattel to sell Barbie-themed merchandise. Um, we transformed our business model. 
said the CEO in 2018, we went from a loss of 200 million of operating income to a positive almost of 800 billion of operating income and continue to grow our business, generate cash and position the company for long-term future growth. Um, Crates, Crease, sorry, CEO, unlauded Gerwig for creating a film that takes the iconic Garby brand and makes it quote unquote relevant to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know the box office for the opening weekend, Barbie grossed twice as much as the next nearest film, which I think was uh -huh. a superhero thing. Oppenheimer uh, grossed almost nothing. Nobody went to see it. And I reserve, I'm not a fan of Christopher Nolan, but, but I'm curious to see the film. Oppenheimer is, a, is an immensely interesting figure but uh but i haven't seen it so i can't talk about it but barbie i don't have to see to talk about uh yeah i i wrote to somebody today who go who goes to see barbie who wants to go see barbie honey barbie open let's get tickets i really want to see this who the fuck does that i i nobody i know i don't I honestly, it's just when my brain freezes up because I don't understand. Johan. <laughs> but this is such a good example, I think, of, of how the spectacle kind of becomes its own content because this is almost a purely purely a marketing phenomenon and nothing else. And I was so surprised and, and, and intrigued by the, you know, volunteer volunteer marketers on, on social media who in, in one way or, or other push this this uh, this product into people's minds. Kind of what we're doing now as well, I guess, involuntarily. But but there's also a connection to to religion and ritual here because uh, a friend of mine shared a, a picture of I think his daughter and, and some of her friends who for no reason at all voluntarily shows up to this movie wearing pink in, in some semi-ritualistic fashion. And that's that's utterly fascinating, I think. Um, yeah, well, popular culture has become a kind of religion. And mm. there's a you know a jillion examples, Star Trek conventions being one, you know, uh, the the idea of the fan and it you can trace this back in terms of aesthetics to that the kind of pivot toward the ironic then sincerity was discouraged irony was encouraged um a kitsch aesthetic it suddenly was overvalued this was camp actually originally which was very subversive but was soon uh, kind of subsumed into uh, something else. And uh, so that you had people, critical writing devoted to Gilligan's Island. What was the, what do you think the best episode of Gilligan's Island was? And people rewatched this stuff. And then in Los Angeles, I remember 25 years ago, there was a hit play that was ongoing uh, where they would perform on stage episodes from Gilligan's Island sequentially. One at, and this went on for several years. People would re-watch Gilligan's Island in live theater. Uh, 
this was, mm -hmm. this is what I come back to a lot when, when discussions of aesthetics come up because uh, it is, it, I, my, one of my favorite comments of Adorno was arguing taste is essential because it's a, there is a moral component to it. I've said this before. And that those, that the discernment or even in the most kind of banal, you know, uh, fashion or something, it still matters. Those choices matter. And, uh, uh, but we have seen the rise with Hollywood and boy, I blame Hollywood for a lot of this. <clears throat> Hollywood uh, expressed things in the narratives became less and less important. Text became less important. Everything became more infantile and, or jingoistic and, and became a recruitment film or TV show for the military. Or it became infantile baby talk. Uh, often that stuff was very fascistic if you started to deconstruct it somehow. Uh, it, it all of all of the from West Wing to uh, what's the what's the the one somebody the vampire killer what's her name <laughs> I can't think of anything except Barbie Buffy? yeah Buffy the Vampire Slayer all yeah. of these shows started to get there are masters theses on on mm. these shows mm. and. Uh, I have said before that the the kind of culmination of of high modernism, the trajectory of oh. high modernism, that perhaps culminated in abstract expressionism, that that was the last sincere artistic expression, and everything after is a kind of postscript. There are great artists working today. There are meaningful artists. Hiroyuki Yamada being one of them. Uh, absolutely, are people out there, but that's not what the vast majority of the public is exposed to. Those are works that have to be searched for and hunted out. What is presented is kitsch. Uh, and so that, that kind of kitsch, infantilism, baby talk, fascism, and just bleeds into politics because there is an ideological dimension to it. Barbie is, has an ideological component and, uh, and it's fascist. I absolutely will go to the mat on that one. Uh, and, and it is, you can trace the evolution of this from really from the seventies onward, the culture industry produced nothing except, uh, except this kind of two-pronged version of fascism, baby talk fascism and hyper-militarized mm. fascism. That, that's, what, that's what you see and that's what you get so that you have the spectacle includes, as I wrote the other day, Michelle Obama on stage with Bruce Springsteen. Mm. Uh, every, you know, people are going, oh, isn't that cool? That's so cool, Michelle's really cool. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's, it, these are my reservations about people like Bob Dylan. 
you know, and who I met and was going to work with at one point briefly, uh, he didn't have to do Victoria's Secret commercials. I think Bob's doesn't worry about paying the rent. You know, why do it? I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But the, the, the fact that artists in just about every field, the majority have become extraordinarily reactionary. The, the role of the radical artists as part of a counterculture and oppositional force that questions the status quo, that is virtually gone. It's just pretty much disappeared. Okay. Um, what else are we going to talk about? We're kind of wrapping up here a little bit, I think. Well, I came Anybody? home. I, I'll go. Yeah. I came home from. Um, I was visiting Alora, Fergus, Saint Jacobs, Elmira, um, an area with lots and lots of farming and lots of lots of Mennonites. I saw something I hadn't seen before, which were cows. So many cows grazing in a forest and a huge woodlot forest and they were so happy and you could see calves skipping and jumping through the forest I'd never really seen anything like that anyway I just I saw a lot of um horse and buggies and it just struck me the stark contrast how they've been able to adhere to their belief system and their lifestyle and um just to start contrast with um you know the massive um, expansion of the system and industrialization and technology and you know how they've just stayed completely almost you know for the most part away from that and I it's just sort of fascinating right because we all we always pretend that tech you know technology is the only solution to our problems and here's people that don't even hardly use any right all very very primitive farming and that and you know they're really they are sustainable in the true sense of the word i think that it's um yeah it is remarkable and i think those and I mean, there's lots of things to say about Mennonites, but um, but this these kinds of communities are enormously appealing today. I I feel it again back to the monks, you know. Uh, but I feel it too. I I it it's there is part of me that knows. <clears throat> that there is a level of sanity in that. And the, the technology that we can talk again about smartphones and apps and everything. I mean, here in Norway, pretty much all business is transacted by smartphone. And you have to have apps. I don't want them, I have to have them or I can't get to my bank. Uh, but everything is done through this. and what you realize is how incredibly inefficient in terms of time this stuff is. I spend an ungodly amount of time figuring this crap out. And I know I'm a Luddite, but, but nobody does it easily. Everybody is frustrated by it. It's incredibly irritating. It's, it's labor intensive, time consuming, and, and mentally exhausting. Uh, it's, it's, 
I have spent the bulk of the summer down at our cabin because my wife's writing her thesis for her master's. And, and um, so I've been here at the cabin with the boys, which has been wonderful. <laughs> We've had a really good time. Uh, and part of it is that often the day is spent wandering in the woods or riding bicycles around and doing nothing purposeful. It's wonderful. And you forget that, you know, I'm old enough that that's how my childhood was spent. There was, there was no, there was no cyber, there was no internet, there was none of this stuff. You got money from the bank, you had to stand in line and take it out from the teller, uh, which entailed having conversations with people in line. That's all gone. This loss of contact with other human beings is profound. People, everything is designed to keep people apart from each other. And it discourages, again, the success is the discouragement and elimination really of discourse, of conversation, of dialogue. And people have forgotten how to do it by and large, even people who dislike what is happening have, it's all very unfamiliar now to deal with people face to face is extraordinarily unfamiliar today. And, and so that itself becomes another layer of, of, uh, of unreality, of anxiety. Corey? I just wondered if Varun's still with us, if he could comment on like the reaction in India, like to Hollywood films, you know, the blockbusters that are here, if they hear of them there, if they're interested, if they want to see them, if they think they're idiotic. Like, I just wondered, you know, what, you know, what it's like there. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Um, Hollywood is very, it's considered the gold standard in India. So, um, I mean, I think we, John has spoken about Priyanka Chopra and that weird show, uh, Quantico, I think. <laughs> uh, <a> couple of <laughs> But the idea is to emulate. It's not, there is to emulate Hollywood to get through those standards to that kind of storytelling. And ever since Netflix has arrived, a lot of the story, the story writing is actually in collaboration with if I'm not mistaken, the team in Los Angeles. Well, Netflix, can I just interject? I, I Netflix just released the Indian version of Ray Donovan, uh, the title of which escapes me. Hold on, I forget what it's called. Um, fuck, Raina something. Anyway, it's it's the Indian producers worked in collaboration with the producers of Ray Donovan to yeah. make an Indian version of Ray Donovan. And I watched a couple of the episodes because it was fascinating. It's utterly incoherent though. Make, that story makes no sense in India. And yet there you have the, you know. But that's, um, that's, been, the, that's been the liberalization story of, of the homogenization of cultures happened primarily through cinema and TV in India. And then after that, there was the music and the fashion branding and the arts and the culture and so on and so forth. 
but primarily it was mainstream television in, in Hollywood, which essentially turned the psyche of the public completely around of what should be sought from, uh, sought from this world, essentially. So it became, I've always said, it's like a, it's like a, like a functioning economy for the US banking system in that sense. Because a lot yeah. of the yeah. lot of the intellectual, the emotional uh, investment goes into products that are from there. So it's it's kind of a it's, it, there's been a really difficult rift, which I don't think can be repaired anymore. Because there is no there is no inspiration which is coming from let's say anywhere in Africa or or even Iran, you know, or French television. Or French film. Yeah, I, uh, None of I that. think I, I, I said I blamed Hollywood for a lot of things, uh, and and I don't think you can overestimate the influence that Hollywood has globally. It's extraordinary, and uh, it has it has colonized all kinds of creative forms, just about everything pays some kind of uh, uh, token, what's the word, uh, to, to Hollywood. Uh, there are references to popular culture, which means Hollywood. And uh, it, it, Hollywood turns out unwatchable film after unwatchable film. Because, partly because there are no writers left. The writers that are left are not hired. Uh, they, the, the formula is set and, and it's a closed shop, essentially. I mean, this is what the strike is about right now, partly is that uh, uh, it's a gig economy in Hollywood and, and it's, it's there is no opportunity for actual freedom of expression, whatever you want to call it. And it wasn't that long ago, 30 years in which, 40 maybe, in which there were great filmmakers, great films being made, extraordinary work, whether it was Antonioni or Godard or Fassbender or Bresson or something. Those kind of films don't get made today, and the stuff that kind of purports to be Bressonian is not. I mean, Paul Schrader is, is one for all his flaws, and there are many. Uh, Paul Schrader still sticks to his uh, has integrity and sticks to his vision, and and makes a Paul Schrader film every time he he uh, gets a film made, which is about once every three years. Anyway, okay, final thoughts from, from anybody? I, just, I mean, yeah. I just add to this. Somebody had made a post on Facebook about uh, one of the actors from the Avengers films, Mark Ruffalo, who is now yeah. trying to advise other actors to join more indie cinema <laughs> after <laughs> decades of making millions on the back of some comic book, kind of these kind of really comical films. Now they all want to get back into indie films, which is basically a sort of a ploy for appropriation of whatever is left of the industry, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are no independent films. 
Um, yeah. You can make the, the technology exists to make micro budget films, but nobody will see them. There's nobody no will see them. No. There's no way there's to no... distribute. Yeah, and and that's the problem. Uh, the distribution monopoly was established very early by Hollywood. I mean, in the 1930s and 20s, maybe, and uh, uh, it has it has an iron grip on on uh, what gets seen, what gets promoted, what what you're. I you know, if you made a film, and there are independent films that actually get made. There was a film a few years ago made by an Irish couple that had been uh, social workers. And they made a documentary and then they decided to make a couple of fiction films. And the second one they made was called Mr. John. And they shot it in Singapore, in the old colonial Singapore. It's a great film. It's a great film. And I always tell people, go see this. If you can find it, see it. It's a great film. People say, geez, I don't know where to, I haven't been able to find any streaming site, nothing to see it. Uh, there's another one made by this uh, radical queer communist, uh, and I can't think of his name, but the film is Stranger at the Lake, and this is 10 years ago now. Brilliant film, extraordinary film. You will have a very hard time um, trying to find it. It's just, uh, it, it, I don't know how you would go about it, actually. All right, last thoughts, Johan? Mm, on there being an iron grip as to what is seen and not seen. Uh, Moon of Alabama makes the observation here today that uh, the Ukraine war is no longer mentioned on the first two screens of the front pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times, which is probably very telling. Yeah, I suspect it is. Um, the 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 funniest thing I read all week was Elijah Wood, who was a Hollywood actor, a C-list Hollywood actor, uh, made a TikTok or one of those things, uh, telling Zelensky he'd help him get into rehab for his drug problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, this is this is as I always talk about Edward Said's dying interview, one of his last interviews on his last legs. At the end of the interview, the, the BBC interviewer said, do you have a, what's your final thought? What's your final feeling about the state of the world? He said, the unreality of all of it. He goes, I just, that's, we are living in a, a world of unreality now. So that's my final thought. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Johan, in particular. We won't keep you up any longer. Corey, thank you for making oh, it. Hiroyuki uh, and Varun, I appreciate all you guys. And Jack Littman back in LA. Uh, and we will have a bunch of links when this podcast is put up. So, uh, and I appreciate everybody who writes to us and donates and it's all extraordinarily appreciated so thank you everybody i'll see you uh thank you in another uh, week or two yeah okay good night